I turned 68 in a, in a little while, so um, when you say, when someone says, why don't you introduce yourself, I think, well, I, there's a lot to remember now. It's getting longer and longer. So I don't know. I, um, I'll tell you, it's uh, getting towards the topic. I, one of the things about going to Regent College is it gives you a, an ability, it gave me an ability just to read theological literature. That's a great gift that the place gives you. It gave me that gift, at least. And I'm very happy that it gave me the, I hope, the ability to read a theologian. I'm, I'm not going to mention him much today, but uh, someone I've been immersed in for a little while now, uh, the, alas, the late John Webster is um, uh, gave given me a lot of uh, things to think about. He's a real theologian. Um, if something in any way, by by the Lord's g g uh, grace today, feels weighty, it's not me. It's probably John Webster, and he would say, "It's not him. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that he'd been called to serve." So. Uh, that's what we're here today uh, to do, uh, learn more about uh, together the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just by way, before I say a word of prayer, just um, by way of um, a preface, I hope a, I hope a good preface. Revelation 1, 12 to 18 goes like this. Um, I, uh, now I've got to find the passage. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. Then I turned, says John, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, sh the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not, I fell at his feet as one dead. But he said to me, Fear not. Commenting on this passage, this theologian says, Jesus Christ, he says the obvious sometimes. Thank goodness for theologians who say the obvious. Jesus Christ is alive, gloriously and resplendently alive, risen from the dead, neither inert nor absent, neither a piece of the past, nor one who possesses himself in solitude or remoteness. He is majestically and spontaneously present, says this theologian as he ponders Holy Scripture. What John describes, he continues, is the fundamental situation of the church. 
That's who we are today. That's who we are today. What John describes is the fundamental situation of the church. The divine voice speaks and the church announces what has already been announced. There's a, a solemn word. What the church announces is what has already been announced. Yes. So if today, again by way of preface, we are listening to the divine word, which is what we intend to do in this place, this church, the divine word, may we put it like this, in the humble form of, div of Holy Scripture, in the humble form of Holy Scripture, it is indeed a loud voice like a trumpet. It is a divine word. There it is. That might um, appear somewhat unnerving as a way to begin to look at a text, that holy scripture as the church confesses it to be, a bit unnerving. But we announce, as John announced, that the divine majesty <clears throat> causing us to fall at his feet as dead says to us, says to us here this morning, fear not, I am the living one. The Lord is majestically present in his church and is speaking to us today. The prophet of, is the, Jesus is the chief preacher of the church. It's prophet. Fear not, I am the living one. So, leading us into a moment of prayer now. In prayer, let's ask, and we do ask, Lord, you the living one, Jesus Christ, this morning, speak to us. Through the humble instruments that you use, speak with us and to us on this, the Lord's Day, in your holy church. Uh, we pray, our Lord, in your name, to your Father. Amen. Speaking of the past, moving on right to today's uh, talk, I apologize for the, uh, the state of the handout today. That's a... Uh, photocopying job done for me by someone at a photocopy shop. I, I'm surprised that uh, it didn't come out better than it did, but this is the passage we're looking at today, starting with the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. The canonical New Testament, we're looking at the opening words of, of the New Testament as we open it, you know, we're used to the New Testament, hopefully as Christians. It begins with a look at the past. For sure, Jesus Christ, according to our theologian teacher, is not a piece of the past, but nevertheless, the witness to him in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, begins again with a look at the past. The past, of course, as you see there, in the form of a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David begins uh, Matthew, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King of David, the king. 
Continues our gospel writer, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, continues the gospel writer, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, and Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Nazor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. He summarizes for us, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That sounds quite different from the first reading from the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Oh, wow, does that ever sound different. Reading a genealogy. Come on, tell me now for sure. Did your, gla your eyes glaze over just a bit there? <laughs> Maybe the eyes do glaze over just a bit, especially when the reader is obviously faking his knowledge of how to pronounce strange Hebrew words. <laughs> and, then, and then, to top it off, as the New Testament begins, we have the strangeness of numbers, you'll recall it. Again, at verse 17, we're reminded, the Gospel writers goes out of its way, 14, 14, 14. <laughs> And then maybe we're a little bit further embarrassed, if that's how you sort of respond to this opening of the New Testament. We're a bit embarrassed when commentators tell us, it's standard issue in the commentators you know, tell us that the name David has a numerical value of 14. An art known as gematria, the Hebrew people, Hebrew people did this kind of thing with names and numbers. And you're going to go, wow, you know. There you go, 14, 14, 14, 14, says the gospel writer. Get that? Folks in, in those times just did apparently attend to numbers. Whatever we're called to do with that, I really don't know in many ways. Make little steps at maybe getting something out of that, but these folks did that. Um, Jesus... Um, attended to this kind of thing in some measure. Jesus had, as we all know, 12 disciples repeating Israel's 12 tribes. If the learned Tom Wright is correct, I don't know if the learned Tom Wright is always correct, he thinks that the Lord's inner circle, Peter, James, and John, is a repetition of an inner circle that surrounded David a kind of public symbol, symbol drama, if you will. Not quite the same as a numbers issue, but something like it, that the public use of numbers and outward drama was the way that these people would communicate with one another. I have 12 disciples, Israel. 
Why? I have an inner circle around me. Does that remind you of the fact that King David had an inner circle of bodyguards to protect him? He had an outer circle, but an inner circle. Hmm, I don't know. I do like summaries uh, that Matthew gives us there. An author helping a reader is why a good author, I take it, gives summaries. Make, are you following me here? Mm -hmm. The author is saying, I take it. Let me help you, reader. Here's a summary of what I'm doing. Paul does summaries, doesn't he? Paul does summaries in his epistles at times. To read, read them carefully, you know he's catching up, sometimes with beautiful rhetorical force, what he's just been saying. Um, to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 18, is one of Paul's remarkable summaries of the gospel. I always sort of, it always hits me with a bit of, wow, that's an interesting summary of the gospel. You'll remember, I know I'm talking to people who know everything that I'm saying when I talk at Learners Exchange. It's one of the nice things. Folks already know what you're saying. But Paul says, and just for reminder's sake, Timothy 2, verse 18. Here, Timothy, get this straight. Here's a kind of summary. Remember Jesus Christ. Okay, gotcha. That's what the church does. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Okay, that sounds real. That's central. And then he says, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. That last bit sort of takes me up a bit. Okay, that's interesting. Paul thinks when he summarizes the gospel... Timothy, you're a preacher of the gospel. You're teaching other people to preach the gospel. Remember this. Just, just keep these things straight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David. That is central to the gospel. Forget that, and you're sort of distorting the gospel. Risen from the dead, descended from David. Amazing. David is apparently essential background to Jesus. David, uh, Matthew and Paul appear to be, if you will, on the same page here. David is really important when you think about Jesus. Uh, that's, that's, I say that to myself, that's, I, I need to hear that. That's a bit strange, maybe. David is really important. Matthew, again, to repeat, isn't this interesting? He begins with the past. As the New Testament opens, the church decided Matthew is somehow first, first the gospel first to be heard. I don't want to overstate that. But he begins with the past, a kind of thick reference. In other words, there's quite a few names here. He, a lot of the past is remembered. Not all of it by any, by any means, but quite a bit of the past Matthew decides to remember as he wants to unfold the mystery of Jesus Christ. Some names, won't go into this in any detail here today, uh, it would be a good talk to go through every blooming name on the list. Some had difficult and troubled lives, to put it mildly. Very strange people on this list, people who had really difficult lives. Adultery and rape and betrayal and Ugliness in human behavior is is up is front and center in this genealogy. Some had difficult and troubled lives. Others are just virtually unknown, really. But Matthew mentions them. 
And yet we are called, like John on Patmos, to turn and attend to the divine voice as it speaks to us in Holy Scripture. This is the divine trumpet-like voice, the voice of many waters, speaks to the church in this way. Today, as the church looks at this particular moment in Holy Scripture, we might ask how many knew, folks on this list, how many of them knew that they were a link in a divine salvation story, which we can safely say Matthew is unfolding here. How many of them knew that they were a link in such a story? They may have thought, I would think, no such thing, or very few of them. (coughs) They just weren't those kind of folks. But they were part of, without knowing it, part of a divine salvation story that God was working into history. A genealogy, this genealogy, certainly means at least that. Trying to ponder this genealogy from out of the genealogy itself, letting it speak, not just random observations about it. Our lives are transparent to our Creator. This we all believe. If we're Christians, we're Jews. Our lives are transparent to our Creator. They are not transparent to us. I think we can safely say is our lives are simply not transparent to us. The big story that we're in has yet to be unfolded. Then we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. We shall. It's not our our meaning hasn't yet unfolded. Our lives are not transparent to us, and Israel always knows this. And the church knows this because the divine voice of Holy Scripture says things to us like. You have searched me and known me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. My God knows me perfectly. It's way beyond my knowledge how God knows me. And what is the true story that I'm in here? Yeah. In the future, a gift of knowledge, our gift of knowledge will be great. Then shall we know even as we are known, says Paul. There's coming a time when we'll be known in some measure as God himself knows us. That is an amazing thought. A, great, a greatness to live towards, isn't it? That we're mysteries, great, astonishing mysteries, creatures that God created out of nothing and said, get to know me. Get to know me. Let's get to know one another. There, this genealogy uh, teaches or reminds us about the past. To say, again, an obvious thing. The past is obviously, and again, allowing this, um, I hope, I trust, allowing the genealogy to speak, not my random thoughts about the past or genealogies. The past is obviously a place of contention, uh, and it provokes much consideration. Matthew's considering the past when he puts together this genealogy. And the genealogy contains people whose lives were filled with contention and trouble and difficulties. David's there to put the obvious ones, David and Bathsheba, Uriah, a woman who's raped Tamar, troubled people, troubled people. Um, 
The past is a place of contention and it makes us think a lot. It is strange to be indifferent to the past. I don't know if there are cultures that have been indifferent to the past. I'd like to talk to George Edgerton about them. As an historian, he could say that maybe there were cultures that were, but it's hard to imagine any that were really indifferent to the past. The past is um, a place that you always want to visit. Collectively, we do it, and um, individually. Our cousins to the south of us are revisiting their past these days. Let's tear down that statue. I don't like that past. Don't like the way it's remembered. And we're doing that now in our country too. Sometimes in times of great social, cultural, political change, the past comes back into contention. It's very odd. The past never goes away. Um, in our time, this goes on. In the time of Israel, the past must have been fought over. Who's telling the story of Israel uh, correctly? In 2011, I just came across this the other day uh, by Serendipity, but that's Providence. 2011 was published a most wondrous book. Oxford University Press published. The title is, the title alone says it all, The Jewish Annotated New Testament. What's that? The Jewish Annotated New Testament. Yes, every verse in every book of the New Testament commented on by Jewish scholars. I, I perused it, very deep stuff, very respectful. The editor talks about how we experience, we Jews sometimes read the New Testament, he says we experience holy envy. You Christians have a lot of beautiful stuff in your book. There it is. Given appropriate resources, every community, every tribe, race, and nation may seek to unfold the past, its own past, and maybe they look at other people's past and maybe comment on it. That's interesting. Who, t who tells this story of the past? Who gets to tell it? Who owns it, to use a more polemical term that's sometimes used in certain kinds of talk about all you? Who owns the past? Do you own the past? Does your community own the past? You, you, can you tell the true story about it, do you? Maybe we tell the true story about the past. Or maybe all stories about the past are true. Another kind of observation that's made in our, on our time. The church, the synagogue, the heirs of the Enlightenment right now all have various big stories to tell us about the past. Even, even a, um, a minimalist story about the past still remains a story about the past. As one writer uh, surveying um, uh, certain, as uh, uh, they used to be called postmodernist writers, late modernists, wherever they are, that said the only thing that matters is that nothing matters, is a kind of summary of the past by some thinkers. And our culture wants to say, no, nothing matters about the past. But to make that assertion is a kind of story about the past. You can't escape telling some kind of story about the past. I declare the past to have nothing in it that matters. You know, uh, a kind of nihilist understanding of the past. That's a kind of, uh, uh, the strange uh, battles that go on in our culture right now about the past. But maybe they've always gone on. I wonder why Matthew says, I'm going to tell the story of Jesus. And he, I, well, I'll start with a genealogy. 
I'll tell the story of the past. This uh, genealogy does not deny, of course, that the past is dark. We've already mentioned this. The past is discouraging. Even a threat to meaning at times. The postmodernist has that old cliche label, has it, like to get rid of it. Some people find, find that you really can't find meaning in the past. You're just projecting an obvious kind of thing to say. There's no meaning back there, but it's sort of convenient to pretend there's a meaning there. But really, it's just one thing after another, and that's it. You know, there's no meaning there. Sort of a fake God, Nietzsche would have said, a small g God. We don't believe in God anymore, but we'll still believe that the historical story has meaning. So Marxism tells you that the, the past has this deep meaning. And if you know the right text to read, it, uh, you can find out its meaning. You know, But there you go. Uncertain is the past. Uh, it's liquid. I love that term from a, a, a critique of modern culture at the University of London. The past, as we understand, that was liquid. It's a shifting landscape. The preferred, um, uh, the preferred modern model of inquiry that is, it's been called the uncommitted, distant, analytic gaze. That's how, uh, that's the most prestigious form of knowledge in our culture, focused on usually the campus, the university campus, exalts, I'm uncommitted, I'm distant, but I have the power of an analytic gaze, and I will look at any past you talk to me about like that. I'll be suspicious of any meaning that you try to tell me about the past. Um, so Matthew has a kind of, um, makes a nod in the direction of some of those truths. This is an unusual list of people. It's almost, it's almost if you're in a certain way, Matthew is saying, what a mess the past is. But God might give it a meaning. He might be sovereignly working out a meaning in this messy past. It's an unusual list. There are kings missing from each section, definitely. The numbers don't really add up to 14. It's a sort of uh, stylized uh, genealogy. It's um, a, a Jewish genealogy containing non-Jews, which is a bit odd. Jewish commentator about this genealogy from that annotated Jewish. He says, you know, we Jews have always thought of Abraham as the first Jew, but also a Jewish, he was a con convert. He's sort of an outsider and an insider at the same time. That's a very interesting comment from a, a Jewish commentator. He wasn't a Jew, but God made him one in a sense. You know, a very interesting comment. And there, again, non-Jews, it's unusual in the Jewish tradition to cite women, four, women's, four women in, in it. Uh, details may be inaccurate. Maybe there's been copying errors made here somewhere. Some is that Asa or did the copyist mean Asaph? Uh, there's questions about that. So this is a bit of a messy genealogy when looked at with that distant analytic gaze that you might find habitual and only allowed really in a studies a religious studies course. Don't want any believers here, or if you are a believer. Uh, stifle it 
while in while you're in a religious studies course. Matthew almost creates, however, don't you agree? Coming back again, going over, stating the same things over and over again, he almost creates really this this uh, this genealogy as a frame for highlighting the name again, David. It's what he wants to really put in front of us: David, David, David. I'm going to just uh, pause and say, I don't have a watch, so I'm not aware of what time it is. Could someone give me a watch? Okay, because I don't want somebody standing up and saying, time to stop. (laughs) Thank you, Beth. That's great. (laughs) That's right. 935-ish are there. From 300 B.C., from 300 B.C., to 200 AD, to use the old ways of talking. 300 BC, 200 AD, that's 500 years, isn't it? There is no evidence that the names Moses, David, or Elijah were ever bestowed on Jewish children. 500 years of written witness, Jewish uh, writings. No evidence whatsoever that any child was ever named Moses, David, or Elijah. Jewish biblical history is for for sure deeply chaotic, but more deeply, it is at least for sure filled with an expectation. What you can't deny about Jewish history is that they always said something's coming that's going to make sense out of this whole story. That's why Matthew wants to put the name David in front of us. Apparently the word David was so redolent of messianic and kingly, divine kingly expectation that they just wouldn't call their boy David ever. This fact, you can look it up, uh, it's magnificently uh, written about by uh, Richard Bauckham, a great scholar. He's an expert on names in the uh, Jewish world, amongst other things. Matthew writes for people who just might entertain an expectation of meaning. Uh, Still in our world, isn't that something that all cultures share? There's an expectation of meaning, I think. Do you ever meet real nihilists who say, no, life has no meaning? You might, but I think deep down they hope that there just might be a meaning that will show up someday. Only a God can save us, as one modern put it. Uh, We hope for a meaning, a purpose, that there might just be a rational outcome to this strange story called history that we're in. Matthew writes a strange history, but he says there is, strangely enough, a meaning to all this. There is a meaning here. In fact, to anticipate, there might be an astonishing meaning beyond beyond all expectation that might show up in history. Astonishment is what the life of faith is about in a sense, isn't it? astonishing but somehow expected why somehow expected well here i'll go back to usual christian biblical talk isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 we rehearsed a lot of this stuff during the advent 
Christmas season. Just to rehearse it again. Again, stuff that we all know. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Matthew may very well have been thinking concretely of this moment in Jewish uh, divine scripture. We know it so well. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. There it is. Isaiah had said that. Whatever you make of that. In other words, we might gloss that as, there might come in amongst us, Matthew says, a unique presence from David's line. A, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And that passage you'll want to remember from Isaiah 11 says at verse 10, not long after the stump of Jesse reference, it says this, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people, stand as a banner for the nations, stand as a banner for the, I believe it's ethne, the ethnics, E-T-H-N-E, ethne, you know? You know, God, Matthew's gospel ends how? It ends with the Great Commission. Go into all the world now, my people. Go to the ethne. Go to the nations. Stand as a witness amongst the nations. Matthew might very well be thinking about that. But that's, again, Christian meditation. We see that as what Matthew's probably thinking about. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. For David, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, I believe the context here is David's passing, his, his physical, the historical David's dying. And, he, and we hear there that a, there is a throne and a kingdom for David. There will be a throne and a kingdom, kingdom established forever. Uh, Israel has woven through its story an expectation that there's some kind of outcome to the mess of history that will confer upon it all the deepest and most profound meaning. There it is. Yeah. This is how, of course, this is how the Church of Jesus Christ sees it all. Of course. That's how we see it all. So what is going on? on here when we Christians talk this way it's how do we think about this kind of knowledge now come to the heart of sort of the thesis theme that I wanted to sort of talk about today um, it can always be better stated uh, corrected but uh, and I look forward to that how do we think about this kind of knowledge we have a genealogy it leads to a guy named David we have background stuff that we go to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Second Samuel and we say, see, it all speaks to one and it all holds together. That's our faith. Is there a gospel clarity anywhere for us about gospel knowledge? Does the gospel tell us about gospel knowledge? Is there a way to seek clarity about that? Um, after all, those learned ones that we can now pick up a book by them and listen to learned Jewish scholars, very sympathetic, uh, learned, open-minded, wanting to discuss with Christians the things of our faiths, who will write deeply learned 
commentary, an annotated big book by them about the Christ in our book. But they don't say, oh, we're going to start coming to church. He must be our Messiah. They don't. How come? You know, how come that's just the reality of a pluralist culture that we live in? Uh, this, again, is how the Church of Jesus Christ sees it all, the genealogy, the background stuff from prophets, the mystery of the word David. Again, what's going on here? This knowledge about uh, this knowledge that we have in front of us, uh, which we call Matthew's Gospel, and we start Matthew's Gospel by reading his genealogy and his, obviously, his vision of prophecy fulfilled, and then following on from this in just a moment, his story about the birth of a baby. How do we deal with this with some gospel clarity? I think we can say it like this. It is, firstly... And this is obvious, I think, once you think it through, and, but you people have already done it, you're way ahead of me on these things. This knowledge is a socially embodied knowledge. That is to say, this is a message which is preached by appointed authorities and their message forms automatically a community. The gospel has never been without a community, in a sense. So one great Catholic theologian, Lubac, sometimes French names still puzzle me. He says, when we look at the New Testament, it's always, yes, we watch the mystery of Jesus, but Jesus has already called people around him to watch him. That's why he called those 12. It's the gospel watched by a budding, forming community. It's already a socially fancy language, but it just means folks together have forms of knowledge. We're one of those social communities that has a form of knowledge that we call the gospel. We believe we're called to it. The appointed ones who teach us this knowledge that we live by are called classically prophets, and apostles. I've already been to church at 7.30, so I'm up on this more than you lazy folks who are going at 11. Because <laughs> I was reminded today by the creed that tell us that we belong to an apostolic church. That is, I'm being told, how did I get my knowledge? How did we get our knowledge? It comes from those guys called apostles that Jesus gathered around him. We have that knowledge, and we're also taught by the folks that Matthew appeals to today, those prophets. We're told in the creed that the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. So the creed reminds us, the creed is the a beautiful summation of the whole mystery of Scripture and the Gospel. Nothing less than that. It tells us, what's the authority? Why are we using the words we use out there in church and in here? Well, apostles and prophets taught us how to say this. That's how. There you go. One of them was on an island called Patmos and heard a voice behind him, and it was the divine speaking voice like mighty waters and like trumpet sound. In other words, it's a divine voice. 
The church is formed by listening to this divine voice. Second, this community produces folks like us. It produces hearers and readers. That's who we are when we come to church. I hear, I heard a wonderful homily today. I heard the head leader of our liturgy, as he always does, leading us today through the words of scripture and prayer, pointing us to the sacrament of bread and wine. Uh, he does that work so well for us. He's appointed in the church to just keep pointing us at the same over and over again. It never changes every week. We should have a word with him. <laughs> to keep at it, we should have a word with him to make sure you keep at it. Don't change. Don't give us any novelties. Yeah. So we hear a voice today. If we're instructed by our theologian, I think he gets it right, Mr. Webster. We here today have been hearing the voice, which is the voice of many waters. Jesus preaches in the church through the instrument of Holy Scripture. There's very few of them. Holy Scripture, water, baptism, and bread and wine at a holy table. Uh, all things, a few other things are, are, are orbit around those things, but that's essentially it. Apostles, prophets, preaching out of the word, baptize people, bring them around bread and wine. Think of the libraries of books that have been written about those few little actions. And they should be. I'm glad they're there. Because it's in a divine mystery that unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. It's just so endlessly rich. Um, the past, um, these readers, these hearers come to believe. I love this idea, drawing to a close, need to have conversation today. Learn this phrase from Ifram Radner, the, another theologian at, uh, at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto. It's a very simple thought, and uh, I love new words for certain ideas. They, they sort of focus the mind on some gospel truth. But Radner says that the past is a form of God's presence. Mm. Isn't Matthew telling us that here's this messy past, but in fact, it was a form. It is still a form of God's presence. That's why we read it. It isn't just a bit of bizarre religious curiosity that makes us read a funny thing like a, an old genealogy. It's God's presence was with David and the adulteress he turned her into an and the woman who had sexual violence inflicted upon her and this strip. Strange unfolding, excuse me, of this story. God was conferring upon it his presence and meaning. And Matthew's telling us that. How wonderful Holy Scripture is. It's just burgeoning with life. It is. Even this boring genealogy is telling me to turn and listen to trumpets. A trumpet like voice, like many waters. This is the divine presence that speaks to the church, in the church all the time. Yeah. The Lord of the church, the one who spoke to John on Patmos... And he speaks to the church. He is, if you will, the church's form of knowledge, witnessed to by very strange instruments. Holy Scripture, baptism, bread and wine, hearing the word read and unfolded a bit. That is the voice of many waters. Wow. It's sort of 
takes your breath away, your breath away. Voice like a trumpet, like many waters. Mr. Webster again, a late. He always speaks of our Lord as He is self-presenting in freedom. We don't have to worry about invoking Him. Will you come out of the past, please, Jesus? Are you in prison there, back in Matthew's Gospel? Do we need brilliant historians like Tom Wright to make you real for us? No, no. In the church, where this form of knowledge is given to the world, the voice of many waters continues to speak. In the church of Jesus Christ, he is known, he is Lord. That's our form of knowledge. And we invite other people to listen in to our form of knowledge. We invite Jewish scholars. It's a great turning in our time that Jewish scholars will pay attention to the New Testament. That's a hopeful sign. We don't have to coerce. We don't have to be anxious. The church, Webster dares to say, and it's in a holy manner, may relax. We are announcing a divine word that's already been announced. That's all we do. Jesus is Lord. He will draw all to him. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all to me. He will do it. He will do it. Great confidence um, in the word. The word removes all historical distance. It removes, in principle, all irony. It removes all unbelief. When you're in the presence of the divine word, all of that begins to disappear. The divine word is the divine word. This is the divine word that spoke us into existence and now speaks to us about our perfect reconciliation and the fact of our perfection that's coming. So the Christian's hope is inviolable. The Christian's hope is perfect, says our theologian, yeah. a servant of the word. That's why we listen to theologians. The ones who serve the word, we listen to them. If they start wandering away from the word, uh, stop listening to them. Just the word of God, that's what we need to hear. That's what theologians serve. So with John, with our whole selves, with our minds, we fall, it's invisible, spiritual things are invisible, they're witnessed to by a very visible church. Today, as we listen to the word of God, we, in a sense, fall dead at his feet. But we hear him saying, fear not, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who brings salvation. I'm the one who originates the world and brings it to its completion. I'm the one who reconciles all things to the Father. This is the voice we hear. So just a brief postscript, just a brief postscript today. At verse 18, if you're following along, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when the mother, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his, his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, all this, says the gospel writer, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called, and he called his name Jesus. Uh, what a postscript. The Bible, is that really the same one, this baby in Mary's womb who John met on Patmos with the voice of a many waters, with a divine trumpet voice that it beyond, annihilates all doubt, all irony, all distance? Yes, the, isn't the Bible amazing? That one on Patmos used to be in Mary's womb. What a world of understanding is the Bible. Uh, it's, uh, it's why it's, it's so big and wonderful and it's got so many points of entry. Our creator invites us into a gracious, mutual understanding of the mystery of the divine and ourselves. He, that divine mystery, gave us our existence. He loves us. We're his creatures. He created us for a purpose. And... He wants us to just give ourselves over in this short little life. I'm running out of it day by day. Look at me, boy. Uh, it's just going by, but we give ourselves over to this reading, this trumpet voice speaking to John, this baby in Mary's womb is speaking to us. No distance, no doubt, no irony, no problems. We're under the authority of a divine word which puts us to death but then raises us up because he lives forevermore. Uh, God's glory, God's glory, Mr. Bauckham says, I'll give him, Mr. Webster says, I love this little phrase from his, um, where is it now? God's glory is God's work. Now, we can never, out of our own resources, get to know God's glory, but God's glory has come to us. It's his work to show us himself. Uh, there it is. What more do you need? The baby in Mary's womb, God's glory reveals God's glory. So today, I didn't feel like I was sitting in the front row, in case you're interested, on the right-hand side. Always get a certain view of our pastor from there. It's really quite impressive. And then I was thinking of it today. Am I really to believe, and I do believe, that today, sitting in that pew, I fell as one dead. But the Lord said, no, fear not. Yes, do fall dead, but fear not. I'm the first and the last. I have conquered for you, and you're my own child, and you're coming to be with me. I've loved the world so much. That's what I'm doing for you. That's all I wanted to say today. And um, you're now going to jump on me and tell me why a lot of this is disordered and a bit creamy. But before, yeah, I just want to say that uh, if there's a theological structure, a theological horizon, which all of this disordered presentation tried humbly to serve, and this is from this is from the late John Webster, wonderful theologian. He puts the whole of every doctrine of the Christian faith. The sacraments, baptism, Holy Scripture, uh, the um, name any doctrine you want. There's so many. The, the mission of the church, the, her orders of uh, of, of uh, pastors, preachers, 
uh, whatever denomination you belong to, they have different names sometimes. Every one of it, every bit of it, is a, is about God electing, electing to save, reconciling, comes to us to reconcile, and to perfect us. The whole story of the gospel always fits in to the, those um, those categories. This is the this is the logic of the gospel. Is there judgment? Yes. Is there hell? Yes. Is there heaven? Yes. Is there all the things that our faith speaks to us about? But never think of them standing on their own. If you do, you'll distort them badly. God is a, an electing God, a reconciling God, a perfecting God. However, we understand those. Every aspect of the faith as it's unfolded for us, it never will slip outside this glory of the gospel. Election, reconciliation, the perfecting of the creation, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies the faithful. So that's why I put these uh, high-sounding theological terms in front of you just to, because uh, you people like big fancy terms. I know I talked to you over coffee. It's great stuff. Um, I should end with a brief prayer before we, uh, before we have a little bit of time for talk. Lord, thank you for your gospel. We confess that we are not really competent readers or hearers of your word in and of ourselves, but we would know and believe what you work into us by announcing it in your divine voice, uh, mighty waters, a mighty presence uh, over us and bringing us to that perfection for which you have created us. Oh Lord, what a hope we have. In the messiness of the world, in the difficulty of our lives, this is our perfect, unshakable hope. And uh, we thank you for your many gifts to us. Amen. Please, please. Oh, please. Okay. please. Um, I, uh, I've been reading through the book of Chronicles. And... Mm. Uh, as you know, there are a lot of genealogies there as well. And, and this is time-based for me because I just see a lot of typology here as well. You get this sense, as you mentioned, there are comments about women in here. And it always seems to underscore something. I think in underscoring something about the importance of, of who you're married to and of mothers as well in these various things. Because... Um, in the book of Chronicles, for example, uh, Jehoshaphat was chastised because of who he allied himself to. And what did that alliance result in? Well, Joram, his son, was conceived by the daughter of Ahab. And they, mm. they mentioned that specifically in the genealogy. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, for he was married to the daughter of Ahab. Mm. And it's almost like God is underscoring, it's important who you're aligning yourself to. And what struck me here just this morning, thinking about this now, is when they mentioned Tamar, for example. Tamar mm. was more righteous mm. than Judah. Mm. She was like, it, it, it was almost the reversal of what Christ did. Mm. Um, she was waiting as the, as the bride for her bridegroom to mm. fulfill what he was supposed to do. Mm. But he wasn't fulfilling what he was supposed to do, and she had to use cunning to get him to do what was righteous, and though he charged her with debauchery, it was actually she who was more righteous, and then he confessed that. Mm. Now she ends up in that genealogy. Mm. And Jesus, I think, is, is what, what, what Matthew is underscoring here is you see this massive human mess 
of all of these failures throughout this where mm-hmm. the, the bride the bridegroom Judah should have acted righteously with Tamar but he didn't but mm-hmm. Jesus did right he's, mm-hmm. he's going to take all of this and redeem that and I just find it very enriching mm-hmm. when, when, when the woman is mentioned when the mother is mentioned I would just say read a little more about that because mm-hmm. it's often there's something mm-hmm. un- under the surface there that might not be mm-hmm. immediately yeah. evident that yeah. why did that son or daughter that came from that person act that way and it can happen yeah. you know, no. for righteous reasons or no. for unrighteous yeah. reasons yeah. no that thank you that's uh, before we go to the questions more important but thank you that's you remind me so much Tom Wright if I've learned anything from Tom Wright unless I he would just go right, as I hear him, right to the heart of it. Israel always finds herself faltering into disobedience. And as Deuteronomy says, when you disobey me in time, God, the God of Israel says, you will be cursed. And Israel keeps on experiencing forms of obedience, but then the curse comes back because of disobedience. So how is this story going to be perfected? Someone in Israel must become the curse. And God provided the one to be cursed, his own son. He became a curse for us, Paul says. Paul's thinking exactly of the end of Deuteronomy. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. Jesus becomes the sin bearer forsaken by his father. He bears the curse for us and for the world. The curse has been dealt with. You know, it's so the mess of the story, yes, it's all kind of curse-like. Even the guys who get it right, sort of, you wonder, did they really get it right? So, yeah, this story has a deep meaning boiling up from it. Sir? Yeah, um, I was going to say it's, we tend to regard genealogies as boring because they aren't particularly important to us. Mm -hmm. But other cultures have a very different perspective. Uh, for some, the genealogies are actually the best parts of the Bible. Mm. If you were to read a Christ's genealogy to a Fijian congregation, they'd be say, allegedly be saying, that's true, that's true. There you go, there you go. Because, of course, uh, genealogies is a man's identity in that place. Yeah, you know, sure. Without genealogies, sure, you're nothing. Sure, sure. And that, of course, was establishing Christ's validity. Yeah, yeah. well, sure, sure. Although, would you agree, I, at, say, at, 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 um, at uh, Nine Lessons in Carols, I would be a strange choice. But I'm maybe showing my own cultural, uh, sh- cultural prejudices. Uh, George and then Colleen? George? Um, this is probably an answer that everybody knows. Oh. I'm a bit ignorant, so I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, do we have any knowledge about genealogy of Mary? And an ally question is, when Mary married Joseph, was she absorbed in his genealogy? Because if you think that Joseph is not Christ's father. No, no. No, well, I, don't, I can't answer that in any detail. I'm sure there are New Testament scholars who've studied the genealogy issue and its interpretation. I know, obviously, Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam, famously. So you could have a genealogy that's just going back to everybody. You know, that were in this genealogy, according to Luke. You know, so I, I don't know. The, the, the twists and turns of the genealogy 
revealed mystery is, is something to look into. George, thank you very much. We look forward to your talk. <laughs> <laughs> Is Mary's yeah, right. Uh, yeah, everybody has uh, uh, my background. You go back far enough, you don't want to know anymore. You know, the, the cattle steal, rustle. Colleen, please. Yeah. Um, in my Utah, Uh-oh. I was engaged to a person of Jewish heritage, mm. and I decided to go through conversion to Judaism, which lasted all about three weeks because I am one of nature's enemies. So ah, but what I remember very, very interestingly about these lessons was the importance of being born of a Jewish woman. Yeah. Now, mm. you are Jewish because you're born from a Jewish woman. Mm. Mm. That was the thing, you know, and I thought, how clever. It's a patriarchy. We all know it's all about the patriarchs. It's all mm. these guys. Yeah, yeah. But to be a Jew is to be born of a Jewish woman. There you go. And I thought, how interesting is that? You know, and, and they said, yes. so, you know, you're doing a conversion here, and just so you know, you're always going to be a bit of a second-class citizen in our religion because yeah. your mother was not Jewish. Yeah. So you, you can go through purification rites and stuff, and yes. you know, yeah, you're kind of Jewish, but... Really, to be born a Jew is to be born of a Jewish mom. And I thought, well, Thank you. the quintessential Jew in our lives was born of Mary. Yeah. And yeah. depending on what her genealogy, the main thing is she's a Jewish woman. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I just no. I think it's very interesting. It's this patriarchal yeah. and it's all the men, the men, the men, yes. the odd woman who gets in there and yeah. you know, but it's, oh. I, I just find that fascinating. You are, in, thank you for that. That is that you are instructing me so wonderful. Thank you. Oh, you are because it, it leapt out at me. The Jewish annotated New Testament just in passing. The, the Jewish guy said, "Oh yeah, you know Abraham was always regarded as both the first proselyte and the first Jew. Who was Abraham's mom? But he's the Jew, Jew." <laughs> Even when you die, you go to his bosom somehow. Wow, there you go. Um, uh, Joseph. Um, you, uh, you provoked me. No, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> that's why I came here. That's why, that's why I was... No, no, it's good. That good, good, good. It, it good. made me think, and yeah. my, I ended up with sort of two trains of thought. The first train of thought is, who is David anyway? According to Holy Scripture? Well, anyway... Uh, you look immediately before and after David at Saul mm. and at Solomon, mm. Mm. and you see a, a little blip, a mm. tiny mountain peak mm. that becomes something special mm. because before Saul, no kings, and mm. after Solomon, two kings. Okay. Uh, Israel became. It, it was kind of the moment, mm. as far as Scripture presents it, yeah. where Israel had it together. Yeah, yeah. Even though David had his problems. Yeah. So, how David came to have that aura? Yeah, yeah. Would be would be something to uh, yeah. to really pay some attention yeah. to. But yeah. then I started looking at the genealogy that you've given us the copy of. Mm -hmm. And there is something parallel to David there, mm -hmm. which is, as you 
already sort of know is one of my themes, and that is where the paragraph breaks. At the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon. That is, in a way, a parallel to David, which is kind of yeah. the low point, oh, yeah. as opposed to the little peak. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Well, on... on so that's what you provoked me No, thank you. Mind. Well, on, on uh, to go back, so Tom Wright, he believes that all Jews, more or less, in the time of our Lord, Jews from Philo, a sophisticated Hellenistic Jew, writing philosophical tracts in Alexandria, to Josephus, to the Dead Sea Scroll people, to Essenes, to uh, Sadducees even, all of them probably shared more or less the conviction that they were still in exile. The temple was there, there was a priesthood, there was a religious life going on, but Wright thinks they still thought of themselves as in exile because the, the, the Yahweh's glory had not returned to the temple. And therefore, he would read Matthew as saying, from, from the deportation to the Christ is really this story of from our continuing exile to finally the end of our exile. Finally, Jesus ends, ends our exile. He dies the perfect curse of Israel's judgment, but he rises from the dead in perfect covenant fulfillment. Israel is now what she was called to be. And, sh- and what happens next? The nations start to gather around the Messiah. And that's why we're here today. We're Gentiles who are gathering around the Messiah. That's, all, that's who we are. Matthew kind of anticipated us. Even though he never he never heard of Vancouver or poor guy, please. Is that, I know that doesn't go directly to your issue, but that's a talk for you to give, my friend. You got a lot of talks just popping up. Okay, when I was reading um, Matthew the chapter one, it's a talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and mm. it's, it looks like it's the mother's side, you know, David's mm. side. I'm just wondering where uh, his mother's side, Mary. Thank you. That's very clear for me. Thank you. <laughs> that's, no, that's what I. There's there's things to unfold here that the word of God is an unfolding mystery in our midst, isn't it? That's. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I I don't. Um, uh, yeah, you're saying that David <coughs> worked up to number fourteen. There was a Jewish numera. No. I, I used to. Uh, well, I, it can. I'm sure numerology goes off in all sorts of strange on, on gematria. Gematria or gematria? Yeah, there's a. They did that sort of thing. I don't know why, but 
Okay. It's part of their, uh, they sometimes pay attention to numbers in ways which are a bit foreign to us, John. Uh, well, there, there's a Kabbalah that's a Jew. Yeah, yeah. My customers is yeah. Jewish. Yeah. And about the thing, too, is from the Sherazetics, and about the women thing, too. The First Nations, they do things through the women. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a matriarchal, so there's mm. certain cultures where it's, it's mm. more through the female. And mm. Catholicism, they exalt the Virgin Mary quite highly, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's good, that's they great. They say Queen of Heaven and stuff like that. Okay, so they're playing the postlude there. Yes. Yes. So two yes. more quick questions. Uh, Rosemary, then Barbara, and then we'll thank the my really quick analogy is whether I picked it up in the reading or just sort of made an assumption. Um, I was I had the impression that Mary was actually related in some way to, to Joseph in a same kinship group and would have been extended house of David as well and was going to register and uh, oh. I don't know. I mean I think totally off in that. Don't yeah, I'm I'm all I don't know. But <laughs> These observations are all good, though, but thank you. Yes, so this is the Finney, is it? No, I, but I'm, I'm short, the, very short. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Yes, 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 yes. Don't worry. Um, uh, uh, the question was, Mary and her kinship, we remember when she was a girl in trouble, she hightailed it to her cousin Elizabeth. And uh, so that gives us a clue. And um, and I just wanted to say, Harvey, that um, all of this all over the place has brought me great comfort. <laughs> because I, I I now don't feel like I've you know mm. maybe never had a mind in the first place or no, no. I had is I've I've lost it. Is this feeling is just part of the process and uh, well, just great to thank be, you. To, to be I. Here in this community, this it is. Well, you well, I, I might, I'll say I've, I'll be bold and to have the last postscript. I am remembering the past as I get older, and I, I thank you, Gladys, because you re, you remind me that I had Regent College professors who would say to me with a bright, friendly look on their face, Harvey, this essay is all over the place, <laughs> which I found out was usually not. A helpful opening line from them. I'm just, you know, I'm being silly. Okay, so let's start with the Harvey first time. <laughs> Thank you.